Hi, everyone. FYI, this episode of Silvacast is being recorded virtually. It is a pandemic after all. So please excuse any funky audio issues. You know what I mean. Welcome to Silvacast, the podcast about all things silviculture. My name is Greg Edge. And I'm Brad Hutnick. And we are both silviculturists with Wisconsin DNR, Division of Forestry, and your hosts for today's show. And Brad, wait for it. Welcome to season two of Silvacast. Season two. Inconceivable. Good job, Vizzini. Yeah. But still, here we are for another season. Well, we, we got to use a princess bride, so this is a good a good day no matter what, Greg. A good start. Mm-hmm. It's a good start. And, you know, I'm, I'm excited about this season. We've got some great topics planned. And better yet, some of the topics actually came from our listeners, which we, that, we really appreciate that. Exactly. Because we want to talk about the silviculture that our foresters and managers are discussing out in the field. Not just the stuff that's in our little bubble, Brad. Well, our, our bubble might be little, but... But uh, we get things that come in, and you're going to like this episode. Uh, Matt from Rhinelander wants to talk about paper birch and wonders if anyone in the Lake States is regenerating birch uh, fast enough to even sustain this type. Hmm. Yeah, there is so much to unpack about paper birch silviculture. Hey, Brad, do you like paper birch? Yeah, so that's a loaded question, right? Like you ask a silviculturist if they like a tree. So yeah. Yeah, so, okay, what do you mean, do I like paper birch? Well, I don't know. Do you like to eat it? I'll, I'll go there. Uh, um, you eat everything in the woods, Brad, so. I, I, you know, I'm, yes, yeah, I'll, I'll eat it. And in fact, I'm all about, you know, like foraging and doing that stuff. And, and you may recall us walking through the woods one time looking at a site we whack some chaga off the side of a tree with a <laughs> when we could find a stick long enough to to reach it and I, i've tried the birch or i've tried the birch syrup um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and a certain listener that we both know uh, yep. makes some saisons with with different types of birch sap so it's good stuff i, I never knew what saisons were before i, I still that don't particular I still don't thing actually those blind taste tests with birch sap beer were were really interesting and but we won't we, go there. Yeah, we didn't go blind, but but it was uh, <laughs> it was good. So yeah, I mean that just emphasizes some of the uses of paper birch, and that always really amazes me. And I think our guests today are going to talk a little bit about that. I'm sure. Uh, but for me, and to Matt's point, uh, paper birch regeneration is really a fascinating subject. So here's a factoid, Brad. I'm ready. Do you know? that in a bumper year, paper birch stand can produce up to 35 million seeds per acre. <laughs> yeah. And I should flippantly say, is that all, you know, kind of thing? <laughs> but, but the better question, who actually counts that? Well, I don't know. Just given um, my uh, background, I would guess a, an undergrad probably did something like that. Yeah. yeah. Was there some kind of torture background? You yeah, had, well, it's all, like it's all torture. So, yeah, that's that is a lot of seed, by the way, Brad, by any standards. Uh, But all that seed does not a birch tree make necessarily. 
So paper birch has one of the lowest ratios of growth to volume of all the tree species in Wisconsin. Yeah. So that's 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 not good outlook for birch. No, that's discouraging. Yeah, in fact, the average annual net growth has been negative for over a decade, uh, meaning mortality exceeds growth. Uh, so, so clearly we're kind of losing the battle to sustain birch, at least the paper birch that we've known it. Yeah, as we've known it. You know, so maybe this is a, a common theme, I guess, maybe season two, we're picking up on season one because we, we talked about tree species where the current disturbance regimes really weren't suitable to maintain what we have right now. Mm -hmm. And and on top of that, we've talked about it in the past, uh, paper birch really isn't predicted to be a quote unquote winner under climate change scenarios. Mm -hmm. Yep. So I told you, there's just a lot to unpack here with paper birch. Uh, so today on Silvacast, we've invited not one, but two experts to talk about this topic of paper birch. It's the first episode of the season, Brad. So, you know, I thought we should go big and have two guests. Go big or go home. So we're going to have our very own colleague and fellow Wisconsin State Silv, Colleen Matula, along with paper birch guru, John Sazada. John is a retired forest research scientist with the U.S. Forest Service. Can't wait. We'll be back in a minute. Today's episode of Silvacast is brought to you by Tree Harmony, the number one tree dating app, helping you separate eggs from Uggs since 2018. Don't be called, join today. Boy, we've all been there, haven't we, Brad? <laughs> Our throwing, often, throwing on that cull pile of life. <laughs> but we both reproduced. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, welcome back to Silvacast with our guests. Colleen Matula and John Sazada. So really excited to have these dual competing guests here today. And Colleen, we see you a lot uh, or talk to you a lot, but just for the other people out there, give us a little introduction of yourself. Oh, my name is Colleen Matula. I work for the DNR. Uh, it's been close to 20 years now in the silviculture program. And prior to that, I worked with the Forest Service for 10 years in forest, forestry and ecology. I grew up in uh, Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and it's here where I got a better understanding of birch uses. Um, there's a larger contingency of Finnish heritage there, and I have a lot of Finnish friends. We would take saunas and swat each other with uh, birch. Uh, <laughs> yeah, somebody, somebody told me about that. I want to know more. <laughs> birch swats, I, I cannot pronounce it because uh, the, the language is very difficult <laughs> to pronounce, but, but a real important part of their heritage are the sauna and birch. So <laughs> now we're going to get our explicit rating for birch swatting. Brought <laughs> <laughs> so. one with me. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Yeah, and truth be told, Colleen is the, uh, if we're, like I always say that uh, DNR silviculture is a three-headed dog, but I think Colleen's the sane head on the uh, on the dog for this one. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah. John, uh, you kind of have a long history of being involved with birch, and tell us a little bit about how you got into all of this and what you've done. Yeah, well, I, I grew up just basically right where I'm sitting. Well, not sitting, but a few miles from here. And <laughs> so I kind of grew up 
with birch. My dad was a forester and uh, we used to go out and cut birch firewood. But anyway, so my career started up in Fairbanks, Alaska. You know, there are not very, very many hardwoods up there in the first place and birch, birch and aspen and balsam poplar are the key ones. So I, mm-hmm. I was around birch a lot. And uh, so I, and then after that, I moved to Oregon for a while and then to Wisconsin, I got back into birch a little bit. And now I'm back in Minnesota. And uh, just about 20 years ago, I accidentally took a class at North House Folk School and kind of fell in love with birch bark and the birch tree again. And uh, so mm-hmm. I've, I've been fooling around with birch bark almost certainly weekly, if not almost daily over that time span. And uh, it's it's been just a whole lot of fun with the people I've met and the interest and all the various ways of thinking about and using the birch tree. So that's kind of where I'm at still. Yeah. Well, John, I've been looking forward to this conversation because I think in forestry, you know, we have research and then we have experience and we don't oftentimes have research and experience kind of coming through in the same people. So, so we get to pick your brain on this stuff. This is going to be really yeah. fun. Well, there's not much brain to pick anymore, but <laughs> no, no, no. So it, let me ask you guys a question, maybe just to start off. So whenever I think of a species or I think about how we want to manage, at least now when I'm thinking ecologically, we kind of think about, well, how did it, how did it work or how did it respond to disturbance historically? And in your experience, uh, Colleen and John, how did maybe birch work in our pre-settlement environments where maybe disturbance played a bigger role in its perpetuation? Yeah, yeah well, um, a lot of people think that uh, birch is, um, paper birch is a fire dependent species, but it's not really so, it's more opportunistic. So where there is fire, you'll probably see this early successional species occupy these sites, especially when mineral soil is exposed after fire. So, so you'll see um, birch, uh, a large component in the pre-settlement conditions along with pine, red pine and white pine. So um, it likes disturbance, period. And as many early successional species, they're more opportunistic of these sites. So since it likes um, disturbance and just kind of goes where that mineral soil seedbed gets exposed or it has that seedbed to, to get started, when we went through the cutover period, we would have had a lot of that type of habitat for birch. So what we see today, is that just a, kind of a big bubble from that big cutover period? Uh, was there less birch on the landscape prior to that? Just trying to get a feel for kind of what we're seeing today and whether that would have been typical Yeah, so pre-settlement conditions, we had less birch, but where we saw birch from um, that period of time was in areas, like I said, the white pine and the red pine colonizing uh, patches where there was stand replacing fire. We probably saw bigger patches of white birch because, Mm -hmm. um, but largely those early successional species were small, you know, much less than what we see today. And then of course, after the cutover, you know, and all the disturbance that occurred along with the cutover. You know, we had probably 1983, we had about 3% of our forest resource in birch uh, as far as acreage goes. So we are kind of phasing out of that big bubble of birch because it's not a long live species and a lot of mortality we're seeing right now. 
I, I think the same thing's happening here in northern Minnesota. Um, a number of years ago, I was talking with the county guys here, and, and they said that they had about 5% of their forest stands left in pure birch, and they weren't at that point even doing anything to try and keep it as part. They, it, didn't, it wasn't a favored or target species at that time. I think a little bit of change has happened, though, because um, I hear them now talking about can we get birch back? And I think Colleen, wind wind disturbance gets the soil all churned up too is probably. Yep. Fire, wind, and also um, logging, logging yeah. history. Yeah. 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 It's just kind of interesting because we, we know from our FIA numbers where birch is on the decline and we're losing it and people are obviously concerned about that. But then also trying to consider that with that, that we're also exiting this bubble from the cutover period. So just some interesting things to think about with it. Yeah, so it's so maybe it's declining, but maybe that baseline of our decline, like you were saying, Greg, if we were in a big bubble, maybe we're maybe we come back to a balance at some sort, or we just have to avoid losing it. So and another tidbit of information is that we're losing it in all age classes. So by half of what we've seen in 1983's inventory. So in largely, you know, I can give some reasons, you know, um, we need a lot of disturbance. It's a sun loving species. It likes disturbance, um, you know, really, you know, big disturbance on the ground, mixing that mineral soil. And then the, uh, you know, the important opportunities of seeding and, um, you know, other things, you know, we don't need desiccation, you know, that would um, cause a lot of mortality. Um, so we need the right conditions uh, to get the birch resource going again. And then a lot of competition is happening with, by red maple, a lot of our forests are getting older, so. I think another thing that I've noticed, maybe, maybe it's not a majority thing, but you know, where you have a, an aspen birch mix, Birch is definitely at not a favorite species in that situation because it comes back just where it was growing, you know. Whereas aspen, of course, spreads out. And uh, I think I think in terms of that mixture here in Minnesota, especially where aspen is viewed as you know a prime species, it comes back bam, you know. And if you got, you, I mean, you get clumps of birch, but it's just where it grew before, not like Aspen where, you know, one tree makes a hundred little ones all scattered out around it, you know, so it is at a disadvantage that way too. Yeah, John brings up a good point. We've had a couple of silviculture trials on uh, managing birch and um, one trial was to, because it, there was a mix of Aspen and birch in the stand, a forester actually did a lot of cutting, you know, tending the stand uh, cutting back the aspen and the releasing um, birch, um, I think 10 feet around specific dominant birch uh, stems. And um, it works, but it's very intensive yeah. <laughs> to do that. So. Mm. Yeah, you see that birch in those aspen mixes a lot, but the birch falls behind uh, right. the aspen. So yeah, I guess that was a question of mine too, like the trial you mentioned, Colleen, if your objective is birch in those mixed stands with aspen, can you do release work and really pull the birch through? And what I'm hearing is probably yes, but it's very intensive and you sounds like you probably have to release it to a 
pretty large degree yeah. to keep that Aspen competition at yeah. bay. I think our, our best opportunities to manage birch, paper birch, is, um, you know, knowing your site, you know, the site quality, the soils, um, you know, and timing these silviculture activities to a good seed crop. Scarification is a must, you know, you, you really have to mix that soil during the logging operation pre or post logging. And, um, you know, be in tune with, you know, periods of drought. You know, if you're on very droughty soils, you might want to do a different silviculture method than um, something like a shelter would. Um, so there is, you know, that would minimize that desiccation. So maybe in both of your experience, thinking about regeneration and what foresters do to try and regenerate it, what have you seen as the most successful systems for paper birch regeneration? Most of my experience was up in Alaska, and I mean, it's just the same is here the without mineral soil you know you're looking at i like to think of seed to seedling ratios you know you're thinking of a million million birch seeds to get started on a pure organic soil if you can even get anything started that way you know so and one thing i noticed up there and i think i've read too is that paper birch doesn't do as well on pure mineral soil but it, it's better with a mix of organic matter and mineral soil i think that's moisture holding capacity and some other other things because um, we had really crude ways of scarifying up there and where you know you just kind of do this dip and dive method with a bulldozer and on the edges of those we got the best regeneration not in the middle where you had mm. really scalped that that uh, mineral soil pretty badly. So once again, I'm putting a plug in for our silviculture trials directory on the forestry website, the DNR forestry website, and we have many uh, paper birch trials documented there. Oh. And, you know, foresters have posted these uh, trials, and I've looked at a lot of them. And uh, one of them was, um, you know, shelter wood, specifically on these droughty soils, but incorporating so shelter wood down to about 40% crown closure because it needs a lot of sun, um, but yet a little bit of shade and protection to the seedlings, but also incorporating scarification. So a couple of foresters tried a variety of techniques, you know, using a root rake, you know, a, you know, a dozer with a, a blade and teeth um, along the blade. And then uh, anchor chain. And then also another one was called a salmon blade. And the salmon blade is, um, you know, these large shoes along a straight blade, um, you know, uh, attached to a bulldozer. And it, it really mixes that soil and incorporates the uh, coarse woody debris that's needed um, also to maintain that site. But one other thing is, he, uh, this one forester did this technique to try to scarify a larger part of the site. So he did crisscrosses of that scarification. So he would go over one time and then crisscross the other. And that proved to be the best technique is the shelter wood along with salmon blade and crisscrossing the area to get maximum scarification. So. How about, how, how about uh, seed tree? Have you had any experience with that? Or I know we've yeah. had discussion here in Wisconsin about that. Yeah, that's what I was going to bring up. I, 
I remember a little bit of a debate about uh, <laughs> one of those intensive forester debates about shelter wood, seed tree, yeah. shelter wood. So seed tree also can be used and it's a technique where you're leaving a certain percentage, uh, either individual trees or little patches of trees. Um, you know, in our silviculture handbook, we recommend, you know, three to 10 trees that are left um, after harvest. And um, you know, scattered throughout the stand, and you're leaving probably your more dominant, co-dominant um, stems that are left on for seed potential. And that works. It it's not recommended on uh, those droughty soils, but uh, it can be used on the sandy loam soils. You know, sure enough, it works very well. But you know, after a couple of years, uh, those seed trees will die as they are stressed after. But the intention of leaving them is for multiple reasons, one of them for seed, and then um, also to just fall over and provide coarse woody debris on the ground. So. so again, you're saying that that consideration of not letting the, the seed and the seedlings desiccate or dry out is really kind of paramount. Mm -hmm. So with that seed tree if you're on a little moisture site, that's gonna help that situation, even though your canopy is much more open with the seed. Tree. Yeah, those little seedlings, when they germinate, you know, um, less than 50% of them survive, you know, a lot of them die um, through desiccation and other measures. So, so we wanna give them a good chance mm -hmm. to survive. So, yeah. so one thing that I, I used to think about was how long the seed bed remains receptive after site preparation because it a lot of other stuff is going to come back as fast if not faster than a birch if you don't if you don't get it that maybe that first year or the second year i, th I think the probability that you'll that the seed trees will be of much value goes away really fast because mm. the seed is tiny i mean it's tiny i you know i was looking up something today and i think what is it two million seeds per pound something like that. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah. it, it's tiny, tiny yeah. seed and it gets, it gets can get covered up quickly. And, and so I think that's an issue. Um, and, you know, even, even in the timing of your site preparation, if you can somehow at least crudely predict when the seed crop is going to be, that if you can time it that way, not, not, you know, do your, your site prep immediately after if it doesn't look like a good seed year but you know because every two or three years four years you're going to get a probably a, a bumper crop so yeah no that's a really yep. good point john about that small window of trying to match that seed bed with that seed crop and so timing becomes really important yeah. and i was kind of brings up a question for me colleen in some of those trials are they scarifying prior to the shelter wood or seed tree cut, or are they doing it after? So, so we do see both. Um, with a salmon blade, um, from what I hear from our forestry technicians, it's uh, easy to operate pr prior to harvesting with um, the salmon blade attached to a dozer. So the ability to get around is a little bit easier. With anchor chaining, I, I see more of that happening post-harvest. That's not as effective. So. Mm. Have you guys had any experience with, I know there's also been discussion about uh, fire as a silvicultural tool and using it to kind of perpetuate birch. Has there been any work with that here in the Lake States? I've seen a little bit of it, but you know, birch is very susceptible to mortality uh, when you bring a fire through. So um, 
some of the sites that have been documented, um, we get a lot of top dieback after a fire runs through. And it's just because it's stressed um, after that fire. So, you know, although a lot of people think it is a, a fire related species, um, it might not be the best for, um, you know, maintaining that species. So, but maybe prepping the site. How about where you don't have those seed trees? Have you seen people try things like direct seeding with paper birch? Yeah, yeah, I don't mean to jump in here a lot, but um, yeah, I, I've seen uh, a couple foresters have um, direct seeded in, you know, the late fall, early winter. And one forester over in Douglas County seeded in November when there was just a light skiff of snow on the ground. And two things here, uh, he was able to, to see how the broadcast of the seed was at the site. So he could ensure he's getting, covering a lot of area with the direct seeding operation. And then also um, snow will help facilitate um, in the spring, you know, more moisture to get the seed to germinate. So, so yeah, we've had a couple direct seeding projects and they seem to work pretty well. I think another thing about this is how far uh, birch seed gets dispersed away from the seed source, because uh, a lot of times I've read, or not a lot, but a number of times you read in the literature about over snow dispersal, when you get certain, you know, the right conditions, and I wouldn't disagree that that happens, but, you know, I don't think that, that you can count on opening up a great big area and thinking that a seed that you're going to get good enough seed dispersal from a quarter of a mile away or something like that, you know, I, I think you got to have that seed a lot closer than long distance over snow dispersal would, would get you your, your result. Yeah, especially in any kind of quantity, like you mentioned earlier, John, to get a, a full yeah. birch stand. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you probably need that that source. Yeah, closer. I think wind dis dispersal is about a couple hundred feet from the main seed tree. That's what the studies say. Yeah, you'd think it would be closer with such a fine little winged seed, but yeah, the, I've read that too. It's it's not maybe quite as far as you think. Is is seed viability an issue in any given year, like for particular for paper birch? Yeah, yes, yeah, the viability is less than 50%, I believe, so, yeah, and so those are the things that you got to be concerned about, and that's why it puts out a lot of seed, I imagine. So, I'm going to bring us back kind of full circle where we started talking about just some of the amazing different uses and values um, behind paper birch. And that's just one thing that always really amazes me about this species and, and the, the number of cultures that use this species. So I know, John, you've, you've got a ton of background and worked with lots of different people uh, about their uses of birch. What kind of things stand out to you about this particular species? You know, probably the, the dominant thing that people think about is the bark. You know, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's, it's so different than all the other trees. So, you know, and, and the bark has such a long, seemingly a long history among the Ojibwe culture and all the, all the Northern native cultures, you know, it was used, you know, I mean, of the canoe and, the, you know, for covering their, their shelters and all that sort of thing. And then, 
all of the you know uses you can bake in it you can harvest sap in it you can you know just all of those things so it I, th I think when most people think about it I think that's probably what comes to mind uh, as far as uses but I mean that barely touches the tip of the iceberg I mean I don't think there's a part of the tree that hasn't that somebody hasn't used at some place plus you know things like chaga and other things that are not are not you know part of the tree itself but but uh you know they invade the tree and and affect it in that way yep. too hey colleen i'd like to talk about just a little more modern use that we're seeing with birch you know all our foresters are well familiar with setting up timber sales for pulp and lumber and everything with birch but maybe a little less familiar with what's come on in the last 10 years and that's the craft industry and I, how is that utilizing birch or wh what's the desire there? What are they, what kind of product are they looking for? So there's been a, a very interesting, we're talking about bubbles, right? So there's this big bubble of demand for uh, birch poles and birch sap, saplings. And it's across the, I know for a fact the, the three states, so Michigan, Minnesota and Wisconsin for sure, where a lot of warehouse and buyers are set up. They, they try to employ harvesters and to harvest the products wherever. And then they sell the product to a variety of, you know, countries uh, that demand this product for the decorative, you know, non-timber forest uh, industry. And it's, it's a huge industry right now. And a lot of it's going to China and other places as well. But, you know, if you have seen some of um, recent weddings, you know, you'll see the decorative, you know, wedding threshold with the birch, you know, sapling and poles. Yeah, or the, cent the table centerpieces, I think I've seen. Table centerpieces. It is a huge industry. And here in Wisconsin, we've had to regulate it as far as uh, issuing permits on state lands to allow that to be harvested within reason. You know, we have designated areas where uh, people can harvest with a permit. Yeah, I could definitely see where, you know, from a sustainability standpoint, the, the challenge is, is to manage where it's appropriate to harvest that younger birch, because obviously you don't want to cut your regen off before it develops. So yeah, I could see where that's, that's, that's a challenge. Yeah. And it, it is a moneymaker, you know, you're not going to pay for your college tuition, but <laughs> you know, you can get, um, you know, anywhere from $2 uh, for an eight foot pole, you know, and, and that's, uh, you know, you, you see semi loads going down the highway to warehouses and, and it can be a concern of you know over har harvesting in some areas so, so it's something to be aware of and uh, in wisconsin here we've been trying to keep tabs on you know the harvest colleen is there discussion about um like sustainability guidelines for harvesting that like so so it sounds like it's a valuable product and then the question is how do you how do you make it sustainable so you can have that product in the long run yeah, we've tossed around some ideas about sustainability, but right now we're just managing the interest out there um, and focusing them to certain areas where, you know, um, we would cut the poles anyways uh, to get into a timber sale, you know, logging roads cleared, stuff like that. So I don't know, it, it's just a product that um, we haven't wrapped our heads around 
to regenerate or, you know, provide areas. Maybe in the future. Well, there's one other thing we got to talk about briefly. And that's this sap that comes out of birch trees. Because we, we in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan are maple syrup snobs. And we miss, we miss big time a really, really important liquid. And that's what comes out of birch trees. And, you know, if you look worldwide, I don't know if this holds anymore, but probably my guess is birch covers a whole lot more area than the maple does. And I don't know how many millions of gallons a year of birch sap are harvested in Scandinavia and Russia in particular. And it pains me you know, that we ignore, uh, obviously, uh, that, you know, it, it's just a, a neat part of the tree that gets, you know, down, ignored, partly because we have maple here. But as you go to Alaska, that's all they got. Mm. So, you know, it, it's not a huge industry up there, but they're doing it, you know. And I guess Scandinavia, the Finns, the Russians, they don't have maples, at least in the far north. And so what do they use? I mean, they harvest the sap. And, and I think it's, it's been shown that maybe birch sap is much more healthy than maple, maple sap is because it does have more stuff in it than maple does. That's not to say that. And the other thing is the sugars are totally different. Sugars, I think, in, in maple are mostly sucrose. And in birch, it's interesting that the very, and it's not very first run, part of the run is sucrose or a lot of sucrose that tapers off. Sucrose is gone and it's fructose and glucose. I think simple sugars that become the, the sweetener in, uh, in maple. And so, you, you know, you've got, and of course, and of course, you know, the big thing is it takes a hundred gallons of birch sap to make one gallon of, of birch you know syrup and so yeah that's a big big deal too but um but i you know i just you know for people that are into it that they miss out you know i mean i harvest it and i just freeze it and drink it you know just straight sap and well we have a friend who's trying to make a dent in using birch sap for beer so okay. question i've got uh, several of my neighbors people you talk to everybody's into chaga now and and that seems like it's the really hot thing. So, what's your familiarity? Is uh, is that very common? Do you guys see it frequently? Are there any issues with with harvesting that? I guess I can start out. I I'm a skeptic, but um, <laughs> I've, I've had you know, and foresters around Grand Rapids have have had uh, lots of inquiries. Somebody will go out in the woods and come back and say, "Why is?" those big chunks off those trees out there, you know, and, and uh, well, that's chaga. And, and, you know, I, I, I don't, wouldn't argue at all. I, the, the thing that, that makes me think that there's something to it is that apparently there's a long Ojibwe history with the use of chaga. So, you know, it's not just a bunch of us white folks out there thinking that that's really miracle stuff. Um, they, I think they, they do some, separation with alcohol to get certain chemicals out of it as opposed to most of the folks just go out and grind it up and make tea out of it that they can have and so i've wondered you know just 
I mean, you're disturbing the tree no matter what you're doing, but what about these two different ways of getting whatever chemicals out of it that you want? I thought that was the sauna, that part. Yeah, part. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So I, drink, sip a tea, swat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but definitely, but, but definitely Chaga is a big deal. And I think it still is here and it's throughout the range. You know, I go back to Alaska to visit every few years and there's all kinds of tinctures and mixtures of Chaga with this and that. And, uh, uh, I've got a bar of soap that I use every morning and half of it's white. I don't know what's in that, but the other half is black and that's, that's got chaga in it. I think we'd be remiss uh, not to mention the values of wildlife and birch. And I know, Colleen, you had mentioned this. And I, had re I have read that uh, moose prefer birch browse, but we're not really in the moose range. But uh, here in Wisconsin, like what is utilizing birch or what isn't? Yeah, you know, have you ever chewed on a twig? <laughs> you know, it's very good. Um, but anyways, uh, um, so many species utilize birch, uh, you know, from the catkins uh, for food to shelter. You know, a lot of animals use it for shelter. Um, you know, the bird species such as red poles and evening grosbeaks, Grouse just love the catkins and just they'll sit down and forage on uh, the, the catkins and the seeds. Interesting uh, species that, you know, you could say it relies on birch is brown creeper. So this is a little tiny bird um, that spirals up the tree and down the tree, uh, just like nuthatches. But they um, make a nest, you know, underneath the bark. And I've uh, encountered a couple of their nests before, and it's so cool to see a, a brown creeper nest. And it's because they it's providing protection, and it's a great spot for them. It's kind of like their niche. You know, other species I've seen um, salamanders. They they love to nestle under the bark because it's a nice moist spot um, for for them to stay, and it's uh, hidden and dark. And so I've, I've encountered you know red back and um, spotted and blue spotted salamanders under bark, um, that, which is on the forest floor, um, a nice cool spot for them to hang out. So, so there's just an abundance of wildlife that um, we can refer to. So. And, and thinking about that importance, so you guys have talked about like, you know, kind of that historic context, the kind of cultural importance of it and maybe the wildlife. So one of those challenges maybe going forward might be climate change. What's the, the forecast or prognosis with climate change? Well, John, it's going to be a loser, hey? <laughs> I'm afraid, um, pretty sad to say, but, um, you know, if we can maintain our birch on some of those ideal spots, um, you know, it's because of desiccation and drought and this fluctuation of weather patterns, um, you know, from lots of rain to, you know, drought periods. Forest health uh, issues such as insect and disease are flourishing in our, you know, with climate change now, and that is can only, you know, uh, hinder birch um, diseases and insect or you know, encourage them to uh, occur. So, so yeah, so I'm a little concerned about birch. So just kind of uh, pulling this together, these are really just diverse and really great conversation, and I knew it would be with this particular species. 
Um, and we know that birch in the lake states, it's, it's declining. We have these challenges, like we mentioned, with climate change. What do you think we should do? I guess both Colleen and John, what do you think we should do moving forward to do our best to try to maintain this species? Mm-hmm. What should foresters do? Well, there, you know, there's, there's obvious things that we, we can do. I know the foresters that I've spoke with um, that have a substantial resource of birch comparative to others, uh, you know, like Douglas County, I, you know, I hate to call out a county, but yeah, Douglas County has a lot of birch and uh, they're managing for birch and they're doing it really well. And so there are areas that um, we identify that we can regenerate birch and we should identify those areas and keep mm-hmm. going with it because, um, you know, whatever they're doing over there, they're doing it right. And, um, you know, so there's other areas across the landscape. I know the Northern Highlands ecological landscape has a lot of opportunities for birch, but I think we have to just be a little more aggressive in those scarification techniques and, and then go with the silviculture that's uh, appropriate for that area, because you really have to know your, your, um, you know, site and stand and habitat type and soils and all that stuff. And I think, I think it will be successful because, you know, the trials that we've seen um, have been successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Colleen, you mentioned uh, previously, you talked about like some ideal sites for it. And, and here we talk about maybe sites where you can manage for it. Are there some commonalities that would, if, if a forester is looking at sites, they might say, oh, this is an ideal site for paper birch. Yeah, you know, I, I've talked to some foresters point out areas like that. So that would be the sandy loams with forest habitat types of, um, you know, the parva and, um, and beyond, like, um, you know, you know, I'm spouting some habitat types that folks might not even know, but, um, but yeah, so those sandy loam soils are really good for birch if you have it at the site. And um, yeah, so, but if you have a lot of competition and deer, deer love white birch, they'll, they'll browse that one for sure. So those are some th- considerations to think about if you're going to try to manage uh, stand. So, but it, it's possible. It's just that we have to identify these sites and just be a little more aggressive with treatments. Yeah. I think one thing is that we don't write it off. You know, we don't write birch off just because of, of the climate thing. And I'm not saying that that's not going to happen, but at this point, it's still a fairly successful species. And if we find the right sites, it just it just brings some nice diversity to our forest landscapes wherever we are. Yep. Well, I think that uh, really is key is uh, don't give up on this species. Look for those opportunities. Like you said, Colleen, think about site and think about like what both of you mentioned today about disturbance and the, the need for having the right kind of conditions um, for seedbed and germination and all that. And we can do it successfully. So. I really appreciate both of you coming in today to talk to us um, and uh, just kind of maybe just even just brushing on this subject because there's a whole uh, lot more we could talk about with uh, these pr- particulars of this species. Can I promote a book? It's called Celebrating Birch. Um, the Lore, the Art, and Craft of the Ancient Tree. And John is a, a co-author of many authors in here. All right. And you can get it at North House Folk School. Awesome book. Oh. Hey, we're all about promoting reading. So, right, Brad? <laughs> yep. 
Well, and, and it's always a treat talking to people who are who are thoughtful and imaginative, thinking about silviculture and kind of the products that we get out of this stuff. So I really appreciate the conversation today. I appreciate Thank the you, opportunity. Thanks very much. Yep. Thanks, both of you. Take care of yourself. That music can only mean it's time for the Dropbox. The Dropbox is a regular segment where we take your comments, questions, tips, and share them with our listeners. If you stick something in the Dropbox, it will be received by our fantastic Silvacast editor, Haley Freider. Haley, how do people get to the Dropbox? Hey, Brad. Listeners can reach us at UW-Stevens Point Wisconsin Forestry Center by emailing wfc at uwsp.edu. Feel free to include a sound file of your question or comment if you like. Your feedback is super important to shaping Silvacast, so please do not hesitate to reach out with a question, topic idea, or any feedback that keeps Greg and Brad in line. I greatly appreciate it. And if you like the episodes, be sure to subscribe. Well, season two. I always dreamed we'd be back here. Those weren't dreams. They were nightmares. Brad, was that God? Not. That was the booth. <laughs> Oh, the booth. Oh, boy. Now the booth is talking to us. <laughs> Season oh, no. two, watch out. <laughs> well, thanks for listening to today's episode of Silvacast. If you have any ideas for future episodes or a question for the Dropbox, please let us know. We learn best when we wrestle with questions, so keep them coming. Well, that does it, everyone. Take care. And as always, thanks to our team here at Silvacast, Haley Freider, our editor-in-chief, Noah LeMade, our IT master, and theme music by Paul Freider. And of course, thank you to UW-Stevens Point, Wisconsin Forestry Center. 